Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at VerdantEarthEducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on December 15th, 2023. Tim Boland is the director of the Poly Hill Arboretum on the island of Martha's Vineyard. Tim moved with his wife, Laura, and two children to the vineyard in 2002. Prior to his move to the vineyard, he was curator of horticulture at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle, Illinois. A plantsman with wide-ranging interests, he is a nationally recognized author, photographer, and lecturer. Tim has an undergraduate degree in landscape horticulture and master's degree in botany and plant pathology from Michigan State University with a specialization in plant ecology and systematics. Tim studies oak trees and has traveled the world to see oaks in their natural habitats. Tim is a board member of the International Oak Society and chair of the Oak Conservation and Research Committee. He is also active in assembling a modern flora of Martha's Vineyard and adjacent islands. Tim is a plant collections advocate and serves on the Living Collections Advisory Committee of the Arnold Arboretum in Boston, Massachusetts. In his position as director of the Poly Hill Arboretum, Tim guides the principal program areas of living collections, education, plant conservation, and community ecology. He is thrilled to see the transformation over the last several years of the Poly Hill Arboretum from a private garden to a community, regional, and national resource. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Tim. We're delighted that you could be with us today. I'm thrilled to be a part of this. And, you know, since you alerted me, I walk every day, usually after work. We have a state forest. And I've been listening to all the podcasts and really all the broad perspectives. And I've just learned a ton. So keep doing this great work. It's awesome. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, thank you. And you know what's really fun about it? For us, it's like going to school every time we do a podcast. Mm -hmm. We're learning as well. And we just feel so blessed that we can meet all these wonderful people like yourself to help us and ground us in our own professions. You know, I think it really makes a huge difference. So, Tim, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. We'd like to hear, you know, your background, who you are, where you came from, and your time at the Morton Arboretum, and your educational opportunities, and even some defining moments as a younger person when you were first engaging with trees and plants. Oh, wow. That's a great question. I was fortunate, I feel, to grow up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I lived in a city, kind of urban situation where we had, you know, your houses separated by driveways. But across the street, while we had a postage stamp for a yard, across the street was a beautiful park. And then beyond that, which I would learn later, was a campus arboretum that had labeled trees. So I had the woodland in between, which was kind of a beach maple woodland. It was in a creek. It was a great place to grow up. And one of the things I remember related to urban trees was a lesson I learned. And I wrote an essay on it somewhere at some point where I think I might have been a 11 years old, so 
it was like 1972, and all the American albums on our street were painted with an orange X. And then the guys came through the following week and cut them all down. And it was like, holy man, what a thing to see. They piled them in the park across the street and lit a giant bonfire. It's like your 11-year-old kid going like, what is this? What? Yeah, no, it was like their early form of sanitation. So then, you know, that happened. I noticed our street turned from, you know, shady to hot. And as I look back from that time, they were planted with a diverse array of trees that I would come to know, scarlet oak and red oaks and lindens. And so they did it right the second time. But because I lived in Michigan, I actually went to Michigan State. And Michigan State has a long agricultural history. And I think I chose it for two reasons. They have a good horticulture department. And actually, Magic Johnson went to school there. (laughs) So I've always been obsessed with basketball. I don't want you to ever talk with my wife. She'll just tell you all about it. But I arrived there in the program, actually, in Landscape Arc. Architecture. I was accepted into that program. And then within like a year, taking a couple woody plant classes, I said, you know what? I really like the art and science of growing plants. And so the whole time I was there, I had wonderful mentors and great teachers. And that's kind of a theme that I feel grateful for in my horticulture and botanical life. And when I was there, I worked in the Beale Botanical Garden. And I don't know if you've been there, but it's this classic kind of European style garden that has plant family beds. It has beds depicting the relationships of plants, taxonomic plants. Probably the most interesting bed of plants was North American weeds, which, you know, all the farmers saw and said, oh, that's what that is. But it was a really great experience. I was 19 years old. And then I actually, another mentor was Art Cameron. I don't know if you know Art, but he worked primarily on post-harvest physiology. So I spent a lot of time with bare root perennials that were from Walter's Gardens, trying to figure out how to overwinter them. They would dig them in the fall and then house them in these big pole barns. So we did all these experiments doing that. And I worked also on the grounds crew. So it was kind of, I worked the whole time I was in school. And when I was there, I met a mentor. Her name's Jane Taylor. And she was kind of the godmother of the children's garden movement. And she said, you know, I don't know if you know, there's opportunities for internships and, you know, go down and look at the internship board. And she was working for 4-H at the time. And I went down there and I saw an advertisement for the Scott Arboretum of Swarthmore College. And it was curatorial intern. And I was trying to get my head around that. What does that mean? It's like, I know museums have curators. So I applied. I got there. And I have to tell you, you guys are know about the Delaware Valley from being from zone four or five, frigid Michigan. And then you're there in the Delaware Valley. I was like, look at there's American hollies. There's like broadleaf <laughs> evergreens. Yeah. And my experience there was a year long, was all about kind of like growing plants, but also labeling plants. And then the director at the time, the person who hired me, Judy, was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, she was an amazing person. And one day I was in the label room stamping out labels, you know, dressograph machine, which are really for dog tags, not plants. (laughs) Right. Right, And you come to kind of rue doing that after you do a Gladitsia trichanthus variety and Nervous Continental. And you make the last one, it's a mistake. You have to start over. But Judy came in and she goes, you want to go look at some magnolias? I'm like, yes, I do. So following that, you know, they have the plant collection network of magnolias. And that was her kind of forte. Judy also, she went to Cornell and she studied plant propagation, which is kind of what my niche is. And so she taught me a lot about plant propagation, but being in the magnolia collection for two hours with Judy was like, I love magnolias. (laughs) So I started an early obsession with those. And then Judy had encouraged me to apply for my next step 
And I have to say, though, prior to this, being in the Delaware Valley and going to Longwood and Winterthur and all these places was such an amazing kind of horticultural experience. And I should mention when I was applying for the job, walking up the steps, came down my future wife, Laura Coit, who actually had been at the Scott Arboretum. So it's very meaningful in more than just horticultural ways. But Judy had been in a program at the Royal Horticulture Society. So I applied for a year-long position there, a fellowship, and I moved to Royal Horticulture Society Wisley in Surrey. And that was yet another step. That's kind of getting into zone eight. And I kind of think in England, and you guys probably been there, mostly like their natural proclivities to gardening, it's their art form that they created. I always say American jazz is ours, but gardening is theirs. So you would go to like a chemist, which they call pharmacy, and they would be selling rooting hormones and dibbers and yes. garden tools. Like, wow, what are these people doing on the side? It's like what they do. So that was incredibly rich. And then I came back on the bookend of it, though, it was kind of an interesting experience. I worked at Chanticleer for three months before I left for Wisley. And then when I got back, I was gainfully unemployed. And so I worked at Chanticleer after it had become a public garden. So Mr. Rosengarten had passed away. So I was kind of seeing that happening, Chanticleer becoming you know, more formalized. And I learned a lot working there. And then from there... Did you work with Tim Wood? Actually, I knew Tim Wood from MSU. Mm -hmm. Yes. But Chris Woods was the director. Oh, Chris Wood. I'm sorry, Chris Woods. At Chanticleer. Wood. Yeah, right. Yeah, he hired me. And at the time, he was married to Judy. So that was kind of the connection there. But you bring up Tim Wood. I went to school with him at MSU later. He's at Spring Meadow, of course. But yeah, Chris hired me. And he you know, eventually transformed that garden. But it was very interesting to see. I have a theme in my life of having been part of gardens that were not public. They were private. And then yes. they became public. And there's a big difference between the two. And that's what happened at Polly Hill and the Morton Arboretum. So I ended up going to England, had a fantastic time. I went to Graham Stewart Thomas's garden, yeah. Christopher Lloyd. I actually met these folks. Mm -hmm. And eventually, halfway through the year, my wife, at the time we were engaged, moved to England and she started working in the design department at Wisley. So my wife went to Cornell. She's a horticulturist and a designer. And so that was kind of an interesting thing, convincing her father that it's okay to move, quit your job and move to England, <laughs> you know, for six months. And thank goodness she did it. But we learned a ton and traveled all the way up to Scotland and Inverroo and all these cool places. And then when I got back, I worked at Chanticleer. And eventually I got a call about a job at Michigan State. And Michigan State had revitalized their woody plant nursery. And at the time, the main person behind that was Jerry Donnelly from the Morton Arboretum. So Jerry was there as the curator of the campus Arboretum, Michigan State. And I'd met him through Jerry. Judy and other people. And so Jerry was also in the botany department. So I got the job in 1988. And I had, should say, at Wisley, I worked in the propagation department. So I really started to learn how to grow plants. And they wanted a plantsman and somebody who knew about plant propagation. So I moved back to East Lansing. And Laura and I got married in 1988, which was a terrible drought year. I don't know if you guys remember that. I just remember starting as a nurseryman and like, okay, there's no water from July 1st. <laughs> It was September 1st. It was such a bad time to be a nurseryman. Yeah. But from there, Jerry and I actually would go to the Morton Arboretum together to take cuttings of plants and, you know, build up the woody plant collections. And I have to say, I had kind of free reign. So I went to the National Arboretum and took cuttings of viburnums. I went all over and private gardens. So I had a blast. And then Jerry and I had talked about applying for a plant taxonomy degree, a master's degree because I'd taken biogeography and I was really fascinated. And I think it's kind of influenced by my time working at Beale about the interrelationships of plants. And so Jerry, though, one day announced, he goes, well, I'm moving to the Morton Arboretum as the director. I'm like, oh, well, 
guess I'm on my own. So <laughs> that kind of went away for a while. But one of the things I would do as a nurseryman is go and collect oak seeds, acorns, for what's called the index seminum, which is a thing that was published by Beale Botanic Garden, where you share seeds across wild source oak. And I was down in the herbarium and the curator came up to me one day and he goes, do you like oaks? And I said, yes, I love them. And he goes, I hate them. <laughs> it's like, who <laughs> says that? <laughs> and he, I was to say, his name is Jose Panero. And he said, well, look, you're here often enough. I know you like oaks. Would you consider working with me on the floor of Oaxaca, Mexico? Uh. And the oaks there. Yeah. And I said, well, yes, if there's money involved. And of course, they said not much money. So I started to work with the botany department teaching the lab classes of taxonomy and plant identification. And then I went to Oaxaca, which was, it changed my life. I kind of saw the diversity, but I also saw the poverty and I could see why trees were in trouble in some areas. And so that was an eye opener, but I ended up getting my master's degree in plant taxonomy with specializing mostly in oaks from that experience. And then I worked at Michigan State until 1998. And then I moved to the Morton Arboretum. So then that was curator of horticulture. And the Morton Arboretum was in a big planning phase to build all the things that you see now. Yeah. Like, you know, the new visitor center, all the gardens. So that four-year period was kind of like all strategic planning, all building. And I had another mentor there, Chris Bachtel, who's director, I believe now, of facilities and grounds. And he was a terrific supervisor. So I've had a nice kind of Midwestern raising up of things. And eventually, I moved here. And I will tell you, when I told Laura, my wife, we're going to move to Martha's Vineyard. And she's like, what? I said, would you remember Polly? I met Polly when I was 24 in the Delaware Valley, and she was very skeptical. But I did apply and I got the job and eventually became the director. So that's a long story. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> that's a great story. That is a great story. <laughs> well, and it makes me think, Tim, you know, we have listeners that are definitely at the early stages of their career. So to hear that narrative over a couple, three decades, you know, it's inspiring, but it's also very instructional and I think affirming for people that are wondering, you know, where am I going with this and where am I going to wind up? What's my next step? So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I think it's important that people hear people's backgrounds because it's never static in the horticulture field. You start in one area and you wind up. I mean, I had a flower shop. Huh? Who would have ever known I would have been a professor? But they invited me to be a professor while I had my flower shop because I was leading the area in design work. And that, to me, was really wonderful. And then that led me to other teaching. And of course, I have a strong background clear across the board. So, you know, that whole idea of being able to be malleable within the context of the profession. Yeah, you know, mentors are a big part of that. And it's really important when people extend an offer or say, hey, here's an opportunity to get involved. And I think horticulture, too, is such a diverse profession now. So it's a great opportunity. Personally, I'm seeing more young people getting involved with it now, which, you know, I had worried about and more like 10 years ago. And so here at the Arboretum, we started a curatorial internship knowing the value of that. And we've had about 13 or 14 people who've come through and they stay here for nine months. And so I've replicated some of the positive experiences because I know that, first of all, you start out in horticulture, it's like, I'm not getting paid that much. <laughs> you're, you're getting kind of into some self-sacrifice, but there is the light at the end of the tunnel. And I have these reflections back about, oh yeah, I kind of remember when I was in the Delaware Valley, I slept a couple of weeks on somebody's screened in porch <laughs> <laughs> trying to find housing. Yeah. However, I think now there's just so much more wide-ranging opportunities, a lot in urban horticulture as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I have to thank you for sending me your internship papers all the time when I was a professor at Temple, because I would have my students apply to, I said, apply to Tim's program. 
And I think I had (laughs) one or two students go through your internship programs. And I always would tell them, I said, you know, if you don't do an internship, your education is not complete. You really have to do an internship. That's when you start to really kind of feel your own power and you can actually see, like you were saying, a light through the end of the tunnel, where you might head next. Mm -hmm. Well, those students were great. And I remember those individuals from Temple. And I think that's a terrific program. And you're right. I think giving them a chance to do a number of different things. Here, we also have two summer internships. And Thank you, you, and I'll be pleased by this. We have a terrific arborist named Ian Yoakum's ISA certified hazardous tree guy. And all of our interns get up in the tree. They're in a harness and they go up there and, you know, let's see what it's like. We run a lift sometimes and they're up in the lift, you know, going up in a canopy of a tulip tree. It's pretty amazing. And I think they come out of it with just so much more perspective and, and more opportunities. And so a lot of our students, Summer interns, you know, go on to work in the nursery industry or different parts of horticulture. The curatorial interns, a lot of them end up being in plant records and curators. So that's been fun. I always am very happy to see the parents of these people who get real jobs because they're paying off their student loans (laughs) (laughs) and they're relieved. But yeah, it's a fantastic field. When you were talking about the arborist, I was surprised because I did a review of the program at Longwood and the following year after they heard that I got my ISA certification, they asked me if I would come and teach for the first time for the professional horticulture students to teach a boar culture. They would have their lab with the arborists out, which they would typically work with the arborists anyway, but they didn't have the formal part of the educational program. We had quite a number of them go on to become arborists, which was really, really wonderful. We have one that we actually interviewed here on our podcast podcast, Jordan Foreman, who is down in North Carolina now working for Bartlett. So, you know, you just never know who's going to feel comfortable with that particular topic or venue and run with it and really make it their own. And I think that that's one of the most important things, and especially a place like Polly Hill, where you have a very diverse area, you have a diverse community, you have collections of not only the oaks, but I understand from you the Stuardia that we would like to talk a little bit about too. It's great for the students to see that. Ask you a question a little bit, even how is our boriculture widely taught still, or is it still? I think Eva's going to have a better sense of that. He were broken up. I couldn't hear you. My internet. Tim was asking about the state of our boriculture coursework at the different colleges and universities, and I thought you'd have a better perspective on that. Actually, I did write the one for the one at Temple, but the problem with that was that we didn't always have enough students to run it. So what I did was I had a brainstorming session with Mars Arboretum, and they came up with their school of a boriculture. When they came up with the school, I said, you know, is there a way that we can have classes at Morris and send the students there to get their classwork done? But, you know, after I left Temple, I'm not sure what happened there, but the school continues at Morris. Oh, good. There's a really good course load there that you can take. And I know Hal and I sometimes take classes there. Hal probably more than I do, but you can actually get all your credits that you need to stay certified. But, you know, the one that I teach at Longwood or was teaching at Longwood was the basis for the exam. I was teaching from the book for basic ISA. And that one was where we got quite a number of people going into taking their exams. So I think it's important. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember Morris having, when I was there, I got up in a tree in a harness because of that program. Yeah, it's just important to have and remember a course called Landscape Ornamental Plant Management that they stopped teaching at Michigan State. And it was kind of the why and how, you know, why are you doing this? How do you ball and burlap a tree? How do you prune? And I think some of those have gone away, but I think the partnerships that you're talking about, Arboretum Botanic Gardens is a rich source of that. We have a great working relationship with Bartlett Tree here, which I can talk about a little bit later. That's wonderful. That's really fabulous. That's what people need to do. They need to have partnerships like that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit more about Polly Hill, Tim. Can you tell our listeners about her, who she was, and what got her into horticulture? 
Yes, she's a legend and you know, an inspiration. She grew up in the Philadelphia area in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. And she was born in 1907. And there's some interesting background on her family. Her father was the first board president of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange way back when it was in Philadelphia. And her early memories of trees was the fact that she went up on the roof of her parents' house. At that time, it was in the countryside. Now Ardmore is all carved up. She saw the flowering dogwoods in the woods. And she also talked about American chestnut that was there in those woods in Ardmore. So she grew up there. And then her parents, Howard and Margaret Butcher, had summered here on Martha's Vineyard in an area called East Chop. And they had a rental there in the summer. And then at some point, they said, you know, We'd like to permanently find a place. And so they were told about a 40-acre area, an abandoned farm in the middle of Martha's Vineyard. And so they bought this property in 1926. So Polly would spend her summers here on Martha's Vineyard. Interesting, Margaret Butcher, her mother, was more obsessed with the buildings and fixing things that were broken down. And Polly was not allowed to plant any plants because her mother just said, look, we're going to be gone back to home in Ardmore. There's no reason to do anything. So Polly eventually went on to school at Vassar and she had a degree in music and ended up somehow right after graduating, moving to Japan for a year and teaching physical education and some other courses to Japanese schoolgirls. It was an all-girls school. And while she was there, she kind of got obsessed with Ikebana and the art of, you know, manipulating plants and bonsai. And so when she got back years later, she would meet somebody who's kind of an interesting sidelight of part of it, the history. She would meet a MIT trained chemist named Julian Hill. And Julian Hill was working at DuPont at the time in Wilmington. So they met, they were married. Julian Hill, his own story is very interesting. He and his lab at DuPont developed the precursor to nylon. So that was kind of in it. And everybody here wishes he had the patent. (laughs) That didn't happen. But they were married and they were spending their summers here. They had three children. And around that time when Polly was like in her 40s and she started to take courses at Longwood Garden and the Barnes Foundation. So there's such a rich history of her association with the Delaware Valley. And one person who influenced her quite a bit was Russell Seibert. I might be saying it wrong, but he was director of Longwood. So Holly raised her children and was taking courses as an amateur horticulturist with an intense interest in plants. And she used to say, I hung out with all the hoity-toity guys and people of the Delaware Valley and learned about plants. And she always said this, I made a pest of myself. (laughs) So she invited Russell Seibert here. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It was an abandoned farm and had beautiful bones. And it has these 200-year-old stone walls. The stones come right out of the property here. So it has a rich legacy of agricultural use. And she was here one day with Russell. Her mother had passed away and Polly was 50 at the time. And she goes, you know what? I'm thinking about starting an arboretum. And Russell goes, I think that's a great idea. So he was here. He looked at all the open space. It's no longer open. It's jammed with trees. But he looked at it. He goes, you should plant with all this space, Agus sylvatica cultivars, because you can let them get big and glorious. So in each corner of the Arboretum are European beaches like Asplenifolia and Laciniata. I mean, just gorgeous trees. So she would start to really get involved with experimental horticulture. And she also was kind of the idea of the Arboretum had taken shape. And I always say this to people, which is kind of funny. She's a prime example of somebody in their midlife or seemingly their midlife that thinks their time had gone by. But Polly had a different view, like I'm going to start an Arboretum from seed, which I think is very cool because people are asking her, well, you know, why don't you just buy plants and buy them in and move them into place. And her response, which is kind of classic, well, we miss the teenage years. They're the most interesting. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's very nice. I like that. And there's a connection with having raised two teenagers here. They are very interesting. 
But she would go on and, you know, it was really amazing. Grow most of the collections from Seed. She certainly had connections with people like Richard Lighty, Paul Meyer, Rick Lewandowski, a lot of people from the Delaware Valley, Judy Zook. And I have this beautiful photo of Judy giving Polly the Scott Arboretum Award. You know, it's just so cool. And Polly was in her 80s. So Polly, through that time of parents leaving, ended up introducing about 60 plants, 60 different types of plants into horticulture as cultivars. But it was kind of a curious kind of side story. She did it. And in her early 90s, she asked her kids, well, do you want to take on this big project? And they all were kind of like, well, you know, to be honest with you, we're not as crazy as you are about plants. They had their own lives. I will say the oldest daughter, Louisa, was on the Temple Ambler board. She reminds me a lot of Polly. So Louisa Hill, there's a crab apple named after Malice Louisa, which is a great tree that they all kind of looked and said, you know, sorry, mother, I think we have to figure out what to do with it. So interestingly enough, it was actually divided into 12 housing plots, potential housing plots. And through just kind of this serendipity of two people meeting, but this is a fascinating side story. Holly had won all of these awards, American Horticulture Society, Scott Arboretum, and had introduced all these plants. But it came to a time like, well, this might be developed. And so on the island, we have a rich history of land conservation. It's like 45% of the island is preserved, which is kind of amazing. So there was a gentleman at the Vineyard Conservation Society who arranged for properties to be preserved. Mm. And in and around 1994, an entrepreneur moved to Martha's Vineyard who was actually a world-renowned virologist, microbiologist. His name was David Hamilton Smith. And his story separately is incredible. I, I actually will send you a Vimeo link about David. Well, David had worked for years to cure childhood meningitis to find a vaccine. And eventually he did. He sacrificed like all of his time and raised money, got a lab in Cambridge where he had gone to school. And they found the cure for childhood meningitis, which would, on a yearly basis, about twenty to 25,000 children would die of that. So he developed a vaccine and he sold the rights to that vaccine to a pharmaceutical company. Kind of in a modern day, you know, I don't know, philanthropy like Carnegie or something. He, his goal is to give his money away. And so he set up a foundation and the first thing they did when they moved here was to buy land. So he was a land conservationist. So how does this all relate to Polly? The vineyard conservation director, Brandon O'Neill, said, you know, David, there's a property in the middle of West Tisbury that's going to be on the market to be sold. And he said, well, you know, I know about that property. My wife, Joan, Joan Smith, paints there. Because Polly always had, and it's really a wonderful thing, this open door policy. Anybody can come. And she would say, meet me right here, old lady. Yellow golf court <laughs> cart in white floppy hat, and they pull in. Oh, there's Polly Hill. So she loves showing around her plants and the gardens. So he met with Polly, and he was entranced by her just because she was such an interesting person. She's in her early 90s. The real kicker of the story, though, which I love, and Polly told me this story, and so did Joan Smith. They were over by the Julian Hill Magnolia, and it's a Magnolia macrophylla. And I think you both know, it's like when you see that tree, you're like, what the hell is that? He's got <laughs> these giant leaves, you know, yeah. these huge flowers. So it was in flower, and David knew nothing about horticulture. He's looking at this tree and goes, what is that? That. Is it tropical? And Polly's response was classic. No, I got it from William so-and-so in 1961. I gave a cold stratification, seven germinated. And she starts rattling off wow. all this detailed information. And he goes, how do you know that? I always joke that she, maybe she used Ginkloba or something. <laughs> had like an incredible <laughs> memory. But how do you know that? And she goes, well, I have all of these plants in a database. He's like, what? You know, you're like, and this is in the 90s. And so he goes, well, I'd like to see that. And so they came to the cow barn and she had to write up the stairs here, plant records. And so she was really renowned for writing down on a session cards, every detail 
And so she talks about sororitum alicodendron flowering at 29 years. I mean, all that stuff is in there. So what she had done because of the proximity to Woods Hole, Cape Cod, she had hired somebody from there to take her accession and deaccession cards and put them into Fox Pro. Like I still remember those ancient yeah. relational databases. They throw fear into us like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Database three, you know, D-base three. So Polly, really, as far as we know, we learned about it later. There's a picture of Polly up here with six different garden directors meeting at the cow barn here, seeing Polly's records. And they established through the American Horticulture Society, this plant records database system. So they all started this idea of like, wow, let's make this a national thing. Maybe make it international where people collect data and then somehow share it. Now it's much easier to do. So David found out about the records and he goes, you know what? You are an observer, you're a recorder, you document things and you share. That is like what science is about. And so he goes, I'm going to preserve this place. I mean, it's a magical moment that that all happened. It could have not. And I always explain to interns when they're typing out labels and doing these things, plant records matter. Because that was the thing that allowed us to, you know, when I say get going, David bought the property from the Hills family. He renovated our administration building, which was near condemnation. He built a visitor center. So more or less like five to eight million dollars went into the transformation of what I talked about earlier, a private garden going to a public garden. And so when you come in now, it's very artfully done. David was an astute design person as well. We have a beautiful visitor center that preserved the oak woodlands around it. We actually have 40 acres of oaks and a native tree trail now that's adjacent to Polly Hill. But all of that, I just feel like it's a serendipity, a lot of it. Like, how did that happen? But it really was Polly and her personality. At just one point of clarification, and again, great storytelling. Thank you so much. I'm inspired. And even at this point in my life, it affirms, wow, I'm really glad I stayed in horticulture. What a great field. So Holly was a butcher. Is that her maiden name? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we know that name a little bit associated with the Morris Arboretum, although I can't remember. Hey, I wanted to ask you, Tim, what's your relationship with Oaks? As director, do you still get to play around with acorns or any of your own interests specific? Yeah, it's been kind of a beautiful obsession. (laughs) Yeah, from looking at those oaks in Michigan, which actually was chinkapin oak. Oh, yeah. Muhlenbergii, which still remains like, what a great plant, you know. So, yeah, we have oak woodlands and they haven't been doing well. We've had a series of insect pests that are mostly native. This is kind of a climate change thing where whatever used to control them, One in particular called Sinipid wasp is attacking our black oaks. But I've gone through early on with my oak work is in 1994, I attended a International Oak Society meeting in California. And again, it's like one of those experiences where I'm working in Michigan and then you go out and you learn about 21 oaks in California and you go on these tours. So it was in Pasadena at the Huntington Botanic Garden. Love that place. Love it, love it, love it. I'm going there next week, as a matter of fact. I'm jealous. So I met a bunch of people. I kind of consider it like, you know, it's a self-help group that gets together every three years. (laughs) All these international oak people like, oh, you have the neurosis too. Yeah, I do. But from there, I kind of learned more about oaks on a worldwide basis. And through time, I made my way onto the board of the Oak Society. And now I'm in charge of a research kind of committee that helps fund oak projects around the world. But one of the things that we've been doing, Hal, here on site is we kind of feel we only have like 30 acres of cultivation. So it's hard to really grow oaks when you have limited space. So we focused on partnering with a few groups. And the biggest network group is the Morton Arboretum on this global conservation consortium for oaks. And essentially, through North America, we're dividing up the endangered oaks of North America and 
collecting them. And then in a broader sense, they're making, I can actually, I'll have somebody who can speak to this better than I can, Amy Byrne. Please do. Yeah, yes. She can tell you more about it. But these meta collections of oaks, they're creating oak orchards mm-hmm. to diversify oak genomes by cross-pollinating species from around their range. So we have an adopted oak. It's called Berkus Oak. And we're really fortunate in Storty as well to have met these people who they have databases for brains in terms of their botany. And one is Ron Lance. And Ron Lance, for instance, you really have to be crazy to write a book on Hawthorns. He wrote the book on Hawthorns. <laughs> You're like, okay. But Ron is one of the people who's been in the field with us. So we can't grow all the endangered oaks, but we're going to grow probably a dozen or more. One is a very interesting oak called maple leaf oak, which actually I met at the Morton Arboretum years ago, Quercus acerifolia. So we collected that in the Ozarks. That's growing here. And what we do is kind of display them and talk to people about why they're endangered in their natural habitat. It's just a really nice learning lesson. So I am very involved with plant propagation a lot. Also, mostly with the two North American Stewardia trees. I have a lot of projects going. I'm a long-term member of the IPPS, International Plant Propagators Society, another self-help group. (laughs) I have a good friend in that group from Long Island, Mark Bridgen, who does work on perennials. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But I was going to say something about the Synod wasp. From what I understand, that wasp is connected to Forsythia. Do you know anything about that? No, it's the first time I heard about that. There's one in particular, a wasp that needs the forsythia for pollination. Mm. That's what they do. But if it's gone, from at least from what I heard, they wreak havoc. Mm. So I'm wondering if that might have something to do with, because a lot of people are ripping out their forsythia. Yeah, we don't have any forsythia, which is interesting because it was like the state shrub of Michigan when I was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> Bad in Texas. Huh? Yeah. The Sinipid wasp has been interesting. Working with Bartlett has been fascinating. So we trace the history of it as it arrived here from the physical point it arrived in a warmer part of the island. And then Interestingly enough, five years prior, it had arrived in Long Island. So it would seem like it was moving north, and maybe that's the climate thing as well. So Long Island has a very similar flora, natural flora, oaks, and acidity. And so Bartlett, this year, the Sinipid wasp made a comeback. And what it does is it lays its eggs into the outer twigs at the top of the plant where there's the most photosynthesis going on and feeding. And then the tree itself says, I'm going to stop this thing by shutting down the vascular feed to it, the phloem or whatever it is. And so those trees start to die out from the top. And if it happens repeatedly with drought, they collapse. So I could send you a photo. It's in one of my Oak Society articles, but we lost 25 out of our 40 acres of oaks in our natural areas and buffering us to the west, they lost 250 acres of oaks. So it's kind of a hard thing. I didn't know what to do, honestly. We had a lot of people volunteering to cut it for firewood. My sense is it's like unnatural phenomena happening that we'd have to endure. So we ended up contacting Harvard Forest. They came and they're just kind of like, oh my God, this is beyond anything we've seen. And so we have a research associate, David Foster. It's been a good part, you know, when you you really don't know something, it's like beyond your comprehension. So that happens with different groups of plants where a taxonomist just knows more than you. And you're like, I give up, come see us, help us. But in this case, David came and we set up nine plots on our property and 11 on the adjacent property to study the carbon release of the forest. So what's happened is, this is another issue on Martha's Vineyard, beaches sprung forward to fill in those dead gaps. They're very competitive. And now we have beach leaf disease. So it's been really hard to watch all these things, but I think it's part of our role on the island, working with Bartlett to better understand and Harvard for us these changes. They're happening all over. Has Bartlett been able to offer a treatment for the oak and the wasp problem? Yes, yes. They were using the same thing, the emerald ash treatment. Right. Emamectin. 
Yes, and that's been effective. We have a 150-year-old black oak. They generally don't live that long because they're kind of, they're not weak-wooded, but they're not like a white oak. They don't have the same density. 150-year-old oak above our fireplace, it's a meeting place right in the center of the arboretum. It's a magnificent oak. And so we treat that and about four or five other trees. And it's been working. We're really pleased. I was just going to say that I just took a class with the EPA on beech leaf disease, and they were using a high concentration of phosphorus. Mm. And that is really doing great things for the beach. But trying to determine when it starts, and it starts at the bottom of the tree and works its way up. So they're trying to figure out who's carrying it or how are the nematodes getting into the leaves. And they're doing a lot of research on that. And I was saying, well, you know, who's at the height of beech trees? People and deer. Yeah, that's so true. Maybe both of us are carrying the nematodes, who knows? But that's another disease that is really wreaking havoc here. Tim, I'm assuming the vineyard has seen its own changes in climate in terms of warmer summers. Actually, you can tell us if you have periods of drought, but the interconnectedness of the rise in insect and disease pressure and the associations with a warming world. You know, you had said at the outset, young people finding their way to horticulture. And it's interesting to kind of look at the naming of different programs that there's urban horticulture, there's environmental horticulture, you know, Mm. schools come up with different reasons, but it almost seems like we're watching the unfolding of a different type of horticulture, which, you know, we could call climate crisis horticulture. You know, that's this, I almost want to say Polly Hill's innocent appreciation and pursuit of magnolia. Now, fast forward 100 years later, it's like, oh my gosh, can we keep these oaks alive? It feels like we're witnessing this trajectory. Yeah, that's all a real good points. And here, I think that is exactly happening. So like one of the theories about this wasp is they think it's native, but what happens happened in the past, they're always around, but a parasitoid or something that was closely associated with it is maybe gone or what we would call its life cycle is altered so they don't match anymore. The classic term is trophic cascade, where one thing's kind of knocked out and then you see an explosion. And I think that's what we're seeing. And, you know, how that is a niche that I think plant pathologists and climate change kind of combining those two fields as an adaptation to what's happening to the world. Here, what I find interesting, we're such a small microcosm. We're 100 square miles, the island. Right. So those things are really impactful here. So we can learn lessons from those, maybe for the broader world. We're seeing it happen right in front of us. So it's been difficult to watch, but I think that is a niche that could be filled because there's just no denying we're seeing it all over. So we have extremely free draining soils. Our pH is about 4.8 to 5.5. Oh my. And so, you know, we have to look at our collections in a broader sense. Like, what are we going to grow that's going to be able to take these challenges? Because they're right at our front door. It's right there. You know, we see sometimes things happen with animals first before it happens with plants because plants are much more integrated. Mm. And I think of when we lost the wolf and the coyote, we started having problems with losing plants because of deer browse and because there was no apex predator. We had those kind of problems. And of course, then with ticks and with mice and right down the line. So all of that is that cascade that you're talking about in the animal world. We saw it also with the buffalo when they disappeared and little did people realize that their hooves were actually plowing the ground and stirring up the seed and their fur was carrying the seed with automatic protein as the seeds fell. So we're actually seeing things quicker in the animal world because of the things that have happened. But now that we're seeing it in the plant world, it's even more alarming because it's affecting even more of the diversity on the Earth's surface. And that's what's really alarming about it. And of course, with climate change and things moving or not moving fast enough, that also is another thing to think about. Yeah, I agree. The animal world is the thing that kind of 
you know, in the web of life. That is what we're seeing here. One interesting aside, you know, we have terrible ticks here. It's a real issue. And the Lone Star tick is here. Mm. And we have a resistance. I think it's everybody managing deer. So we have on a hundred square mile island, 5,000 deer. And, you know, we're working with the local conservation organizations to get access to hunt. But having deer browse so heavily, I should mention that the thing that really bugs me in our woodlot is the beach I'm kind of coming to grips with, but they're eating our white oaks. So the white oaks are trying to come back to fill the forest, but with that type of density. And then the deer, of course, carrying the ticks. So our arborist and a few other people have set up a program here where there's more access to hunting, bow hunting in particular, and then the deer are shared with the local food bank. And that's been a great thing. <laughs> Yesterday, a FedEx truck pulled up with, I don't know how many gallons of Bob X. Just like, you know, <laughs> so we spray Bobex constantly. I spray it in my home garden. It kind of smells like ballpark Franks, you know. <laughs> you, you walk in the door yeah. and my kids are like, what do you, that's a weird cologne you have on. I'm like, well, you know, I know a deer will never bite me. <laughs> but yeah, that's so true, Eva. It's not it's something we're going to have to adjust to. And maybe that's also part of what Hal's getting into, too. All those dynamics and interrelationships as an opportunity. And I do see American colleges having that ability because you have zoology and botany and, and all those things together. But I like inserting horticulture into that. And part of the response is, I would say, horticultural conservation, you know, our ability to grow trees. And, you know, I'm a botanist, so I see things that way, but I'm a horticulturist. And it's kind of horticulturists really know how to grow things. And it's really important for us to kind of work with these natural areas and say, okay, we are stewards. We put ourselves into this position and that's like where we can insert our knowledge base. It's exciting. So we're going to plant some white oaks and grow a ton of them and probably grow them in tree tubes to begin with. If they get up to like six, seven feet, they're okay. Is the arboretum deer fenced or it sounds like you still have deer pressure? Just one part of it, it was done in 1970 or so. It's called Polly's Playpen, and it's an <laughs> enchanting place. I remember reading about that. Yeah, and she put it in to grow all of her seed and her you know, experiments, kind of not liking it that the deer would come and munch them. There's a funny NPR interview with her with local radio station. Where she starts out with this line, kill all the deer. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and she can... Oh, so that went over big. Yeah, she can see like the interview guys like stunned that this nice little old lady. And then she goes, of course, they're just hungry. You know, the poor little things, but we are dedicated to doing that. So we have a two acre woodland garden plan. It's like our next great thing to do here in terms of providing protection. We have a fenced in nursery area that's really productive. So we grow in a pot and pot situation. Are you guys familiar with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we kind of train our plants in captivity over there, protected from deer. Then we transplant them onto the grounds and then we cage them for a while and then we release them, but continue to have to spray. So it's a difficult place to grow plants. I'm thinking that maybe the Miyawaki method would be helpful for them. Are you familiar with Miyawaki? No. It's a very intensely planted small area that you put in hundreds of plants and it's kind of, you cage it in, but it actually dukes it out with itself to get a little forest going. And within 10 years, you have a 50-year forest. Ah, so, yeah. yeah. I'd be interested in doing something like that because the next phase is, you know, to put that woodland garden in. But I think Overall, we might want to cage the entirety of the Arboretum. And I remember a visit to the Tyler Arboretum yes. in Philadelphia, and yep. they did a superb job of that. So I think a long-term goal is to do it and do it in a way aesthetically where it doesn't impact the visitor's experience. Like you don't feel like you're walking into a prison, <laughs> but I think we're going to do that eventually. 
Well, you know, in working in Longwood, they have the deer hunts on a regular basis, which keeps the population down. And the population around that lives around there knows that they do it because it actually mm. helps the community because there's so many deer. It's almost alarming because there's so many people that get killed on the highway from them because there's that many. Oh, yeah. Same here. Too many humans, too many deer. Before we wrap up, Tim, can you talk a little bit about the Polyhill Arboretum's plant hunting and expeditions? It sounds like something happened in 2022. Yeah, actually, I checked in with Emily. I want to mention that we have such a superlative staff of trained people. And Emily Allingson is our curator, assistant director, and she's been taking on the trips. I insert myself into trips specifically, mostly for oaks and the native stewardia. We could do a separate whole podcast on the two native species because I've done a lot of plant propagation experiments. But our expeditions in 2022 and 2021 were for the silky stewardia, stewardia malacodendron. And it's interesting, people go like, why do you choose those plants? Well, Polly started growing those before anybody in the early 60s. And so it's kind of crazy. We have, I believe, and it's another point of study, I think, the mycorrhizae in our soil that they really like. They're a very finicky group, the two native species, to adapt to new soils. They're notorious for just giving up the ghost and dying. Like, oh, that's great, all that. Yeah. But our mission that's changed since Polly's time, Polly wanted to name cultivative varieties. And we have, I have a Stewardia Oveda called Inner Light that I selected. So we're still doing that, but we're more kind of into horticultural conservation. So we're using our collections like a zoo to preserve germplasm. And we only know that we can do a certain portion of it. We know we can't capture all the genetic diversity of Stewardia. So we send these trees out that we grow, other botanic gardens and arboreta as a safeguard. But the trip in 2021 and 2022 were in the panhandle of Florida and Stewardia Mount Alcadendron there is endangered. So it takes a lot of permitting. And it's actually also rugged territory, the panhandle and new ticks that I was introduced to. <laughs> and I just don't like snakes. I'll just come out and say that. I mean, I like them like on TV or something. But one of the things we do is to take our curatorial interns on these trips. And it's an adventure for them. They lead a lot of the planning and the permitting. So that nine-month position really gets involved with like the whole process of how you go, get permission to collect. And then how much do you collect? Because there's protocols. You don't want to take all the seed off a tree. But we had in 2021, we had a fantastic trip that it was maybe eight days and included going up to Georgia for the other story of Veda. And then one thing we also do, they happen to be nearby, our native azaleas mm. and they're fantastic i just you know, yeah and they grow super well here so the expeditions are doing what polly did with special interest groups but it's also kind of looking at it increasing our wild collected plants so polly had about 15 percent when i started as curator here and now our collections are about 40 percent wild collected so we feel that's just like a nice plant conservation story. And then because we've been successful growing them, I'm always reminded by Emily, like we have too many plants. Yeah. So <laughs> we ship them to the National Arboretum. Longwood actually gets quite a few of our plants. So our expeditions have been super fun. I mean, it's great. One other thing, mostly not always unique to us, but we send our gardeners on these trips and our arborists. So I think among the staff, they get a feel for like the whole process. Why do we go there? How do we do it? And why it's right. important. And then they right. come back here and they go, you know what? I want this thing to, you know, Polly used to say, provide the best cultivated conditions for your plants to reach their true potential. I love that. And so that's yeah. what I, that's our motto. Just like we got to keep doing that. Love that. Tim, do you have a favorite tree? Oh my gosh, Hale, that's such a hard question. <laughs> I, you know, with this one, I was going to say, I'm really going to have fun. We always ask the question, but for some reason, asking Tim Bolin the question had significant weight. Well, I just had an interview with a horticulturist yesterday who answered the same way I did. And I said, that's a great horticulturist because yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, today, like out in front, there's a tree from the Crumb Creek in Philadelphia. It's our largest tulip tree. Oh. Area dendron. It was Polly's second tree she planted. And I was looking at it last week, and there were birds eating the seeds out of the follicles. I don't even know what kind of birds they were because I'd walk underneath it and they take off. But there's all these seeds that drifted about, and it's such a statuesque tree. So that was my favorite last week. My overall favorite is oaks just because it started earlier. But I would say if I had to put it, my number one is still sugar maple. <laughs> Good Midwestern choice. Yeah. So That's I great. love sugar maple. That's wonderful. Well, it was really delightful having you on and finally getting a chance to meet you in person after all the emails back and forth. And we hope to get up there and see Polly Hill Arboretum. And hopefully our listeners will definitely visit Polly Hill when they're in the area of Martha's Vineyard. I think it's wonderful. Well, thank you. It's been fun. And keep up the good work of plant evangelism, because that's what you're doing. And it's very inspiring to me. And it's been fun to listening to these recordings as I walk, as I'm learning so much. And I wish both of you a great, happy holiday season. Oh, and same to you. Yes. Yes. All right. Take care. Thank you for your kind feedback on the podcast. Yes. We appreciate that as well. Oh, you're welcome. And you're both, I hope to see you in 2024 on Polly Hill. Sounds awesome. good. Take care. Thanks, Take Tim. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.